Where does your mind go when I say Patagonia? Well, I can tell you where Google goes. Patagonia sale, Patagonia sweatshirts, Patagonia baby bibs. In fact, for every 100 people in the U.S. who searched for Patagonia this year, only about six and a half were searching for Patagonia, the region. Today, we're diving into the world of Patagonia. So whether your mind jumped to the California-based clothing company or the Southern Cones National Park, you're right. My name is Lucy Kleiner, and this is The Nature Dilemma, a podcast series by Osa Conservation dedicated to, inspired by, and created in the last wild places on Earth. These stories help us understand the dilemma between humanity and the planet humanity depends on. We'll tap into the knowledge of experts around the world and take you to some of the most pristine and vulnerable wildernesses on Earth. I'm reporting from the Osa Conservation Biological Station, surrounded by Costa Rica's ancient rainforests. Join me as I look for answers from the top conservationists, scientists, and nature nerds around the world. I am honored to introduce Chris Tompkins, but I have to say this introduction is harder than any I've done before because I don't even know where to start. For over 15 years, Chris worked as the CEO of Patagonia Clothing Company. Before that, she was actually one of the first six employees of Patagonia. And while that may be enough to grab your attention, her job titles do not stop there. Chris is the chair of National Geographic's Last Wild Places campaign, as well as the United Nations Environment Patron of Protected Areas. Over a decade ago, her and her late husband, Doug Tompkins, had protected more land than any other private individual in the world when they signed two million acres into protection. Today, that number has risen to over 14.7 million. So let's stay with that theme of millions as I introduce you to Chris, the co-founder of Tompkins Conservation and the woman who went from making millions to protecting millions. Today, we're going to Patagonia and beyond. Here's Chris. I'm Chris Tompkins, and along with my husband, Doug Tompkins, have been spending the last third of our lives working in conservation of large-scale territories and rewilding those keystone species that have gone missing. I'm so excited to talk to you about the big and the wild, but especially about the rewilding process, because that's something that Tompkins Conservation is really leading the way in. Um, But before we dive into that, I know you've mentioned in your TED Talk last year and throughout some of your work, this kind of power of absence. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk a lot about what we can do to keep the wild present. Mm -hmm. But I want to start off by talking about absence and what that means to you. Well, I learned about the power of absence pretty early on. First of all, our father, father died very young when we were living in Venezuela as kids. But most importantly, I think it really hit home when our great-grandfather's ranch was sold. We were the fourth generation to grow up on that ranch. And when our aunts and my our mother decided to sell it, nobody in our generation wanted to take on ranching. You know, by then we were long gone doing other things. And so they sold it. And the minute it was sold, 
it dawned on all of us that we had been left without an anchor, that land, that that these roots that we had had been cut. And ever since then, I think I've really understood that if you want to know and judge the importance of something, imagine a world without that rather than just taking advantage or just assuming it'll be there. And that's how I got on to really looking at the importance of something seen through the eyes of absence rather than its presence. When you think about people who are living in the marginal areas of the globe in the sub-Sahara in Africa or down in the South Pacific on smaller, lower island chains, the, the result of climate is being felt. It's not, it's not coming. It's arrived. That's why we feel such a sense of urgency in the work that we do. It's not five decades out anymore. It's here. Yeah. And so let's let's talk about the sense of urgency and the work that you do. Can you tell me how you turned from a young girl growing up in California to being involved with one of the largest environmental kind of corporate brands in the world? Yeah, I'll try to do it as quickly as possible. <laughs> Well, first of all, we we are children of the 60s and 70s, so there was a lot of activism, a lot of the women's movement, the peace movement, and a Vietnam civil rights movement. It was all happening when I was young. And I always appreciated that fact because it allowed me eventually to meet Yvonne Chouinard, who was then making technical rock and ice climbing equipment. And I started working for him during my summers off from college because my mother informed me that contrary to my um, assumption, she's not my personal banker and I had to go get a job. (laughs) So I was bemoaning this fact to Yvonne and he said, oh, come on, you can work for me for $1.50 an hour, which I thought was a lot of money. (laughs) And so in the summers, I worked for him and just in the shop there, a tiny shop. And then when I graduated from college, in our family, you just had to go to college. Nobody talked about what you might be doing afterwards. And so when I graduated, I went back to work for Yvonne, making $2 an hour now. A big raise. <laughs> <laughs> A couple years into that, he decided that he wanted to make clothing for climbers and, you know, all of us in that part of society and then that morphed into Patagonia company and at the time well, there were only six of us when we got started and and then I retired 24 years later <laughs> I've never worked anyplace else I was the CEO of the company for about 15 16 years until the day I um, retired at 43 and went to Chile joined Doug, and that's how we got started. So I'm so intrigued by that that flip. Mm-hmm. Patagonia is obviously a very environmentally conscious brand. I think that, that drives a lot of its mm-hmm. success. Was conservation heavy on your mind when you were working for Yvonne? No, not at all. <laughs> it, it became such. Really, Yvonne and Melinda Chouinard are the reasons that I developed any environmental ethic whatsoever in the mid seventies, I had no idea 
you know, I was uh, a ski racer and going out into all sorts of places, but I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't cognizant of what was actually taking place even then. But then through working with them and in the mid eighties, they decided to quote, pay their rent for living on the planet. And we started donating 10% of our profits toward environmental groups and issues. And then Yvonne wanted to change that to 1% of total revenue because first of all, we all know companies can hide their profits. And secondly, uh, whether you're profitable or you're losing money, you're still degrading the earth. That's not really the question. So for the last 30 years, the 1% for the planet, which Yvonne started, was the guideline. You know, my basic personality is probably that of a fighter, and it didn't take much to nudge me over the edge in terms of wanting to do something that had nothing to do with me, but rather those things that we love. And that's, and then Doug and I fell in love. And as we all know, love is the ultimate motivator to do about anything. So there were a combination of things that through timing and the serendipitous moments in one's life, it all sort of came together. And I was really happy to just changed my life 180 degrees and go to a roadless area in southern Chile, base ourselves there, and start in. <laughs> well, on behalf of uh, the entire planet, we can say thank you that <laughs> you had some lucky timing, it sounds like, was really the accumulation of a lot of things falling into place at the right time. Yeah, I feel like I've had, um, you know, there's been plenty of loss in my life, but Basically, I've led a really charmed life to be able to do the things that that we've been able to do. And it inspired so much. As you kind of made that shift toward that roadless place at the tip of the earth, take me with you to Patagonia. Tell me about those first steps in that place and how you decided, you and Doug, together that this was the space that you were going to commit the second halves of your lives to. Well... Doug had been a ski racer and used to train in Argentina and Chile in the off seasons. And he didn't have any money, so he would hitchhike around both countries. And he really fell in love with the whole Southern Cone. And then in 1968, Yvonne, Doug, and a couple other guys spent six months driving from San Francisco down to Patagonia to climb a really emblematic peak there that one of them, I guess, Doug had seen in a book. <laughs> they never forgot that the trip nor this territory that is incredibly, it's vast, it's romantic, it's, it's, it's a very harsh territory. And that's why Yvonne decided to name the company Patagonia was because of that trip. He wanted that ethos and that emotion represented in the in the company so when doug left a spree sold his half of a spree he was looking around for the place that he really wanted to 
sink his teeth into. And of course, the Southern Cone came to mind and he was a bush pilot. So he flew down there in his plane several times. But on this particular trip, began to look around. He was with a small group of people flying around and he saw what is today Pumalin National Park, which is a million acres. And, you know, I can't tell the whole story because he's not here, but he, there was a kind of gestalt that he said, ah, I think starting here is a good idea. And, you know, all ideas are organic. We didn't start out with this master plan that in, in 28 years we would have saved just under 15 million acres and 13 national parks. And all. That never, you never start out that way. You just start. So there wasn't any grand plan at first. It was an idea that we were able to initiate. And these were Doug's ideas. These weren't my ideas. I was in the throes of um, throwing an atomic bomb in my life. I left a company I love and a job I was good at and loved and, and went 8,000 miles to the south <laughs> to change the nature of my work. But the idea to acquire large tracts of land and eventually hopefully create national parks out of them, donating them back to the country was Doug's idea. It wasn't mine. So with Doug's passion child, we're 8,000 miles south in Patagonia, and you, you come with this wild idea to buy land and then give it away. And I know that that was not uh, well-received right off the bat. Can you talk to me about those early years, what it was like? Oh, yeah. No, it was the Wild West and dangerous and all the things you can imagine. As we started to acquire large tracts of land, especially around Pumaline, with pristine forests that were all a forest type that was fantastic for, for timber, for, for harvesting, and we didn't harvest it. We had a different vision for those forests. And, oh, my goodness, we were called couple who cut Chile in half. People accused us of creating a new Jewish state, even though we were both raised as Anglicans. Um, a nuclear waste dump for the United States. A military base for the Argentines so they could come in and finish Chile off. So today, when I look back on this five years, the first five years, phones were tapped the entire time. There were death threats that were serious. There were, you know, military flights over our house all the time, buzzing us, scaring us, uh, and the team members, you know, this was very difficult for everybody. It wasn't just the Doug and Chris story. We had incredibly dedicated team members who were under this same veil of threat. We just kept thinking, Okay, we nose to the grindstone. We just keep going. We were building infrastructure so so visitors can come to these properties. And we just thought, we just have to get through this and people will eventually come to understand that what we said we were doing is in fact true. And that's pretty much what happened over time, kind of gritting, <laughs> gritting our teeth and just getting through it. But yeah, it was quite difficult in the beginning. But that was 
today, that's a generation ago. That's 25 years ago. So I see that period in much different eyes than I did when we were in the middle of it. Because anytime, just imagine that a couple foreigners arrives to the country, starts buying up huge tracts of land and not doing anything with it. And 28 years ago, that would have been a real shock and and suspicious. So I don't think of it as anything but the natural course of an evolution of a new idea there. I don't even think about it anymore. I had my phone tapped for five years, but I don't think about those days anymore. Well, I don't because it, I think that it's, well, I've, to me, it's really understandable. Everything new, probably for good reason, whatever it is, is suspect. It was a long time ago, too. <laughs> you have to let go of things. <laughs> well, it's amazing that through all of that, you, you kept pushing, you kept going, and like you mentioned, 15 million that's huge. I think you have to remember that the number one word we've used for our conservation strategy is leverage. We didn't buy 14.7 million acres. We bought several million acres, but we were always leveraging government land. So these were always eventually the parks that are formed are a real partnership between public and private, the the national governments of both countries and then stimulated by our donations. And I think that's been a great model. And I think that everything we do will, by the very nature of the work, will always very intimately involve the national governments and provincial governments. So let's let's dive into that because I have questions for you. Mm-hmm. After meeting with Enrique Sala, who is the founder of National Geographic Pristine Seas, he takes a similar approach where he works with governments and he really focuses on those high level decision makers to move Mm -hmm. forward to make a big step to get places protected Mm -hmm. what is your approach to talking to and inspiring those high level decision makers what's the message you give them well every deal is different depending on the geographical particularities of the place depending on what region it's in you know there there is no one perfect strategy, but I would say overall, we work at a very local level, and as Enric says, the very highest level. Our biggest work has been done typically directly with the presidencies. Now, when it comes to rewilding, working with wildlife is completely the opposite. So tell me about that. Tell me about the rewilding and how it's the opposite. About 15 years ago, longer, 18 years ago, we realized that we were creating all of these extraordinary territories. They were extraordinary without us putting them into conservation. But we weren't really focused on who's missing inside them. Rewilding extirpated species wasn't primary to our work. And then as one very wonderful woman said, landscape without wildlife is just scenery. And that was a cold drink of water for us that we realized that you can't leave a project unless the keystone species are present because it's not going to be fully functioning. Okay, I want to jump in here quickly because Chris talks a lot about keystone species. 
In fact, she built an entire organization around them. So I want to quickly break down what a keystone species actually is. The term was introduced back in the 1960s, and it speaks to the species who play a disproportionately large role in nature. Keystone species can be anything from jaguars or wolves to peccaries, prairie dogs, sea otters, even mangroves or tiny little fungi. So basically, keystone species are like the ecosystem's glue. So that really completely and forever changed the nature of our work. And we dedicated ourselves to understanding the situation with all keystone species and where they they were absent altogether or their numbers were very fragile. We would work to change the end of that story. And that's what got us very actively into rewilding. And it's easily half of what we do now, probably over half of what we do. And I need to congratulate you and the whole Tompkins conservation team because we're coming up on the two-month anniversary of some jaguars being rewilded. Yes, with the first group of jaguars are roaming free in Ibera wetlands. That was a, a real, a really important day for us when they were finally released. And now we have more individuals who are getting ready to be released. And so the pipeline of cats moving toward their freedom is pretty full. Very happy about that. It's a very big deal. Was the path towards releasing those first, that first group of jaguars, was there as much pushback as your first years in conservation where you were just trying, you were really focused on the land or what, what did that look like? Surprisingly not in Corrientes, the province where uh, they were released. They, the jaguars had been absent in Ibera since the 1930s. And when we started when we first committed to bringing jaguars back and, and trying what was the f first strategy of its kind, actually developing a breeding center and developing breeding pairs of jaguars whose offspring would be released eventually. We, of course, in parallel to developing the techniques to create the population, we thought there was going to be a terrific headwind in terms of local communities, provincial government, national government, but in fact, the contrary was true because in Corrientes, their provincial mascot spirit was the jaguar. They just hadn't had any in decades. So the reaction we got was quite unlike the, the reaction we anticipated. We really credit the national Argentine government, the national parks of Argentina and very specifically the Corrientes government and the citizens of Corrientes for bringing back the jaguar, because in the absence of that, it would never have happened. We consider ourselves involved in making it happen, but they are the ones who need to be congratulated. Small scale and big scale celebrations all around. <laughs> yeah, so... Chris, have you ever been up close with a jaguar? Well, the first time I ever saw a jaguar in the wild was with Alan Rabinowitz in the Pantanal in Brazil. And we were very close to them. And it, you know, I was weeping. They're so beautiful and so majestic. 
but back in Ibera, in the center that we created to try to um, breed them and increase the population such that we could start releasing them. No, you're very close to them. From the time they come to the quarantine center, which we have to have, you have to hold them for a while um, until, you know, for some people, the day they were released. I just think you're, the overwhelming feeling is gratitude that you can participate in something like that. The leaders of the rewilding team really are some of the best in the world. It's just extraordinary. It was very, we've had, you know, it's been 10 years, a lot of work, a lot of money. And then the minute they were released, you just forget about all that. And you're, you're just grateful to be part of it. <laughs> and your rewilding expands beyond Jaguars. Yes, quite a bit. Do you see this as kind of an expandable model that you're building in other parts of the world? Yeah, and I think it's essential. I, and, and I think a, a lot of people around the world see it as essential. It's not us, per se. If you look at rewilding Britain, which would be one of the toughest areas to work, and they're doing it throughout Europe. Because I know in Costa Rica, there is a desire to bring back anteaters and, and other species. So I think it's I think it's really on the move. I'll deliver the message to our executive director because I know a huge dream of his is to rewild the harpy eagle. Yes, I heard about that. We have a we have an interest in the harpy eagle over in the Iwasu area. And I think there was some discussion about uh, the team in Argentina getting together with you guys to really talk about what it would take to do that. We now have three species of birds. The red-shouldered macaws are back, first time in 130 years. And they're back, they've bred in the wild. We have macaw chicks who have fledged and are out and eating what they're supposed to be eating and dispersing seeds and so on and so forth. Whatever we've learned and all the mistakes we've made, and there certainly have been plenty, we want that out there. We, we'd like to see the whole planet rewild. So we're very open about any way that we can help others who are headed down the same path. You, you tend to think about rewilding as the work on the ground with the individuals and so on. But the, some of the toughest work is finding individuals on the front end. Zoos don't want to work with you or everybody's curious. Again, it's something new. So people are wringing their hands. They don't want to be part of a failure. So it's very, it's always a little tough getting going. But then once that traction has been found, things speed up. So we'd be delighted to have a Harpy Eagle conversation with you guys whenever you feel like it. <laughs> Perfect. That's inspiring. Exactly what we're going for. I think that I hear the words like rewild Harpy Eagle every week and our team is doing so much uh, restoration and getting into rewilding and that's that's why it's so exciting to talk to you no i think it's our experience tells me that you just have to decide because once you decide to do it then you're forced to go out and figure out how and when and with whom this is a worthwhile thing that needs to be done. And then that's the decision.
because if you only got started on something you knew how to do or had a trajectory that could be somehow well known before you get started, you won't do it because a lot of this is new and you just have to feel your way along. And we had tremendous help. We went to South Africa several times talking about translocations. So there are people out there who have skills that you don't have. You don't even know you're supposed to have them. Rewilding gathers people like no other activity. Everybody's interested and everybody is learning from one another. We had Jaguar specialists from Brazil. We had the director of the Iberian Lynx recovery program from Spain, very involved in the Jaguar program because finally it all comes to the same thing. Everybody is learning from everybody else. And you need that kind of support. You need that. And, and all projects do because the the possibility of failure is high. So you're trying to absorb an infinite number of experiences, suppositions, hunches, some experience from far, far away, but is it applicable? And, and listening to people all over the place. So I have to say when the Jaguars were released a couple months ago, it wasn't just us celebrating. There were people around the world who had some impact or some involvement in that moment when they walked through the gates. And I, I, I love that. I want more people to be involved than ever. What do you think? Do you think it's Jaguar specific that gets that draws this attraction from all over the world? No. What is it that draws this celebration? It's not jaguars. It's the it's the idea that what, in my opinion, it's the idea that conservation of territory has has been necessary for for the last two hundred years. Putting things aside that are pristine or restoring big territories. That's all true. But the notion of bringing back species who've gone missing is a global inspiration it is not jaguars it can be the red squirrel in the uk it can be some small rodent up in scotland it can be the iberian lynx it can be anything so there are some emblematic species i'm sure but i'm impressed by the fact that it is the, the act of rewilding that has captured everyone's imaginations. It is not just emblematic species like jags and, and, and others. And I think that we might agree that that's that catching people's attention, getting people taking action now mm. is key, whether it's for jaguars or squirrels in the UK. But grabbing attention, pulling people in that wouldn't consider themselves even a conservationist yet and making everybody kind of rethink the way that they interact with the natural world. Absolutely. I think if we truly believe that all life has intrinsic value, if we really believe that, that encompasses everything from Black Lives Matter to to red squirrels. Everyone has intrinsic value. 
And I don't think you can ever separate out the value of our human landscape to the non-human world. I think it's very bad if you're, it's very damaging. If you are solely focused on one or the other, that's one of the problems that we face is that there is, there is social justice, philanthropy, and then there's a little philanthropy that goes to nature. And I, I really see that the human construct is so ignorant and mislead, misled in this sense, because if we, the great social justice crisis is climate change. And so you have to do all this in parallel. You have to work on issues of racism and equity and all the things that have gratefully come up so strongly now. But none of this can be done in the absence or the loss of focus on other things. So we have to ask of ourselves enough that we do our part for our human community as best we can and also the natural world. So it's double time work, but there's so much at stake. Why wouldn't you just put your boots on and, and take up everything that you can and do it well at a high level? I mean, I definitely think that the time for inaction on an individual basis is so far past us. I have a very short fuse for people who are sitting back hoping that someone else will take care of something. I just have no sympathy for that whatsoever. I mean, I think that, I mean, kind of like the theme that we've been talking about through all of this is taking action, no matter where you are, what you're doing. You just started talking about how these social issues and climate issues are one and the same. The biggest social justice issue is climate change. This wasn't on my question list, but now that we're talking about it, I wanted to ask you about I saw recently, uh, like last week, that we, we were celebrating the International Day of the Woman and you shared a video mm-hmm. on your social media talking about all of the wonderful women that you've had the, the honor to work with throughout your career. Mm-hmm. How does that mm-hmm. kind of play a role in your conservation work? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I don't have many regrets in my life, but when I look back at my role at Patagonia as a CEO, I realize now that I could have done much more in terms of speaking out for women and leadership roles and women in general. And I didn't, I didn't, there were very few female CEOs in in that era. And um, I remember Time Magazine coming out to interview me. They were doing a, a large article on the glass ceiling for women. So they wanted to talk to me about my own experience. And as they did, I foolishly sat there and just said, well, in my case, I grew up in a family where the girls were just expected to do, there was no difference. And then working with Yvonne all those years, he loves working with women and never saw gender being an issue whatsoever. And my work with Doug always was teamwork. So anyway, all to say I, 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 I was too naive 
and too simplistic back in the late 80s to say what I would definitely say about women today. I think our role as women in general has improved somewhat, but basically nothing as it should. I think, you know, that's almost 40 years ago. And I tell you, it's still a very steep climb for most women around the world, very. And I was sort of a little too young to have really understood the nature of the civil rights movement in the United States. And now I look back and it's, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's uh, deeply frustrating and maddening that these basic inherent rights are so hard to realize. And uh, I'll work until my last breath on these issues that, that I think really hogtie our ability to really create civil societies. The societies we have are not civil. And civil societies also don't try to destroy everything around them, which is also taking place. I was invited to speak with Pope Francis uh, um, a year and a half ago or so at the Vatican, just privately. And we talked a lot about this. My, my interest in um, kind of focusing on the non-human world in my day job and his focus on human communities, poverty, uh, the terrible disparity between wealth and poverty and so on. And I, I said, you know, we have to change the concept of peace right now. It's a very human construct. If you win the Nobel Peace Prize, you've done so likely because you stopped some conflict someplace or you tried to. And, you know, it's very human oriented. But if you don't, if you don't expand the basic concept of peace to include the non-human world, you are never going to get there because a healthy ecosystem is the underpinning of every social justice issue on the planet. And if you don't believe that, check with the people in Flint, Michigan, or, or, or in communities all around the world. So I think, you know, I, I pro my proposition is that Jane Goodall, E.O. Wilson, Sir David, they're all recipients of the Nobel Peace Prize because they have dedicated their lives to creating that expanded and groundswelling concept of what peace really means. So, I don't know, I got off on that. I probably shouldn't have, but that's what it takes, I think. Um, it's refreshing to hear people talk about having to do both or having to do all three, especially in conservation work. And like you said, it's the most important issue that we're facing right now. So having a, an accomplished leader address that is really inspiring. You know, I, we all have to concentrate. We can't, none of us can do everything. 
but we damn well better have the the energy to support those who are working in other areas and and believe it that it's necessary and and to champion those things and it makes it harder and all those things are true but if you don't if you don't push on society from a, a lot of avenues simultaneously things won't change they just won't so all hands on deck that's my sense i love it let's talk about that change that you're working for that pope francis is working for what are the next big goals for tompkins conservation well the projects we have now ever since we made this series of big donations there were about two weeks there where i was completely landless for the first time in decades but now you know we have been in the planning and we're executing on new programs and i hope we double triple the amount of territory we've been able to secure so far and continue to work wherever we work that we're bringing back extirpated keystone species and we do a lot of work on the economic side because we believe that any protected area anywhere in the world will need to be able to withstand tremendous social pressure over the next hundred years or so longer. So you, you really want to genuinely develop things that all can benefit from, that the local communities are benefiting from, that the regional communities are benefiting from. You know, I grew up in a small town. I'm sitting here in, right now <laughs> and with parents who believe that uh, nobody is well until all are well. And there was a huge sense of helping neighbors and so on. And, and I really came to understand, A, that the more you got, the more you give, which just as an ethos in the family. And secondly, that it's never either or. Let's protect the jaguars and not pay so much attention to what's happening in the communities. And we're not community workers in the true sense. We're not doing that full time, but we never separate out the goodness and health and dignity of a community um, which our projects are neighbors to. You can't really separate those things out. And again, as a reminder of this, when the jaguars walk through those gates, the people of Corrientes went crazy. I mean, from the smallest children to the oldest people like me, <laughs> they are welcomed into that society as theirs, not in a sense of ownership, but a sense of the power of the presence of this cat that's been gone for so long. I mean, that's almost 80 years it's been gone. And that's a home run, at least the front end of a home run, when everybody takes pride and a sense of ownership of a project that's gone on for 10 years. 
Yes, very cohesive. Um, and again, congratulations on that home run. Congratulations on nearly 15 million acres, another home run. Like you said, it's not either or. Um, and I'm excited for what comes from Tompkins Conservation. Thanks again for your time. Good luck. Good luck down there and all the best. Don't lose sight of that harpy eagle. And all the best to you and your team as well. Thank you. Ciao, ciao. One more time, that was Chris Tompkins, a rewilding conservation icon who has spearheaded the creation of nearly 15 million protected acres and reintroduced keystone species throughout the Southern Cone. You can learn more about Chris and her work at TompkinsConservation.org. If you liked this episode of The Nature Dilemma, please share it with your friends, your family, and everyone else who lives on planet Earth and cares about our human dependence on nature. To really show your support, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps keep this show around, so eventually I might get to share the story of rewilding that harpy eagle here in Costa Rica's Osa Peninsula. Once again, my name is Lucy Kleiner, and this is The Nature Dilemma, brought to you by Osa Conservation. Thanks so much for listening.